guest today is a therapist specializing in borderline personality disorder, trauma, multicultural issues, and depression. She currently works at a rehab clinic, supporting mental health needs of patients in recovery and at a private practice. Our discussion centered around mental illness, how social media addiction can and does exacerbate mental disorders, and the growing optimism surrounding psychedelic therapies for treatment. Here's a fantastic conversation with my friend, Zara Roth. So how long have you been working with people and figuring out what's going on in their brain? Probably my whole life. I just, I never really understood people that well. Um, And I guess just with relationships, they've always been really turbulent. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I decided to go into being a therapist and truly understanding people. But I worked um, clinically about three years now. Okay. And so... What uh, what was your educational background? I actually got my undergrad in electrical engineering and physics. And so I worked in biomed for about a year. I decided I hated it. <laughs> it was awful. I felt like basically killing myself every day. Um, and then I just worked odd jobs here and there. I worked for Amazon for a bit in their um, facility doing manual labor for about a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I did real estate. I worked as a journalist for a bit uh, and then decided I wanted to go into grad school and become a, a clinician. Wow. That's kind of like all over the place. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it takes trying something to figure out what you don't like, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. I made a list at one point. And I've had like 25 different jobs. Wow. None of them were real career paths. You know, it's like gas station, Quiznos. Like, mm. But I worked at 25 different places in like 10 or 12 years. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Sometimes you just got to gotta try something. Unfortunately, you spent four years studying to do biomed and then discovered you hated it. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly does that entail? What is biomed? Um, well, it depends. I worked um, on heart pacers, so pa- pacemakers for your heart. And um, I did a lot of low frequency validation. So signals and systems, um, just really boring stuff, to be honest. Um, I was a really bad engineer, so I felt <laughs> bad for working in biomed. I'm sure I was probably responsible for some deaths. Oh, geez. So, you know, I just was not good at my job. So I'm like, it's probably a bad idea. I stick around in this industry. So I should probably do something I'm actually good at. Yeah. So basically testing pacemakers? Yeah, just testing the signals. um, And because you need a certain frequency for uh, things to be correct. Um, But yeah, I... I, uh, it's been a while since I've worked in engineering, so I don't remember much from it. Huh. Yeah, that seems like one of those fields that people get into because it probably pays really well mm-hmm. and there are job opportunities, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I went into college during the recession. So it's like, oh, what makes me the most money? What are my best job options? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that happening now, I've I've talked about this many times, but just I I have three kids Mm. and one of them is in high school and he's going to have to start deciding if he's going to go to college or not and what he's going to do. And 
that's the thing. I don't know what to tell them anymore. Uh, it's, it's, it used to be that you went to college and you were kind of guaranteed a job mm. and it's not really that way anymore. And you can go so severely in debt getting Absolutely. a degree. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've noticed with the younger generation, especially my Gen Z patients. They uh, don't really see the value in college anymore. And I think that veil is kind of, um, it's gone. You know, it's kind of a social construct that you need to graduate high school, go to college, get a good job, get married, have kids. But I think um, all of that is falling apart ever since COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things have changed quite a bit in a number of ways. So you have been doing uh, your current work for the last three years. And what are you focusing on? I mostly focus on trauma work. Um, and I somehow kind of fell into borderline personality disorder because I worked at a DBT clinic and most of our patients had BPD uh, or a DBT clinic. And um, I focus on those personality disorders, cluster B, um, which is narcissistic, histrionic, um, psychopathic. So um, those trauma-related personality disorders, trauma in general, and also um, in the future, psychedelic therapy. Okay. What is DBT? DBT is dialectical behavior therapy, and it was created by Marsha Linehan, and she happened to have borderline personality disorder. So she created it just to cope with the symptoms, and um, it's all about rigid thinking and trying to break that up. So dialectics is like black and white, and you kind of want to meet in the middle, and there's different um, parts to it. There's mindfulness, uh, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And each different section has different coping skills. So people afflicted with this disorder come in with very black and white thinking, and your goal is to get them to go somewhere in between. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just put out an episode with Dr. Adam Rodriguez, and we talked in depth about a bunch of this stuff. Um, and so it's good to talk to you as well. Uh, we did not talk about dialectic, dialectical behavior therapy. Mm. So what when you have someone that comes in with any of these four cluster B personality disorders, what exactly are you doing with them? How are you working through this? Um, you Well, we would diagnose them first. So there's different assessments you can take. Uh, for borderline, DBT has been shown to be the most effective solution. Um, you can't really treat borderline or really take medication for it. So you have to learn these different skills to cope through it. Um, so we would work with emotion regulation because a big part of uh, borderline and also these other personality disorders is impulse control and anger. So many of the patients coming in are experiencing impulse, mm -hmm. uh, lack of impulse control. And that's a, a fairly common trait. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Impulsivity is yeah. huge. Meaning what? What exactly? Can you give me any uh, examples? Yeah. Um, so with borderline, a huge part of it is a fear of abandonment. 
And so um, people with BPD will do anything to avoid being abandoned by others, which can result to extreme measures such as maybe spamming someone's phone or even showing up to their house um, or even threatening suicide if they don't respond. Okay. And uh, I mean, how successful are you? The, the thing that we talked about previously is when I was talking with Dr. Adam, um, the, the problem typically is that people with these disorders are incapable of admitting they have the disorder, correct? Sometimes. Um, with narcissists, they tend to deny. Um, they don't want to um, change the way people perceive them. They don't want to seem um, lesser than, so they often deny this um, diagnosis. But I found people with borderline tend to be very open and honest and upfront that they have it. Hmm. So what is the, if you could break it down into percentages of the four, borderline, narcissistic, histrionic, and psychopathic? Mm -hmm. Antisocial. Antisocial. If you could break down the amount of people coming in with those four, what would be the percentages? Mm. Like, is it mainly borderline? Yeah. I would say um, in terms of my caseload, it's probably 25% borderline. Mm -hmm. And then maybe 10% narcissistic. And I haven't really experienced any other uh, personality disorders with my patients. You're not seeing any histrionic or antisocial? No. No. Hmm. Do you think that this is being exacerbated by the, the time that we live in? Like, are there elements of popular culture or society that are making these things more common? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I think that our society, especially nowadays, tends to drive people a little crazy. And the thing about mental health care is we tend to blame it on the individual, so internal factors versus external. And we should really be looking at the whole and looking at the social causes as to why people have mental illness and I think especially with narcissism and, and uh, sociopathy, um, antisocial personalities, it is exacerbated by our culture for external validation, external values, um, lack of empathy. That's a huge one. Hmm. Why do you think there's a lack of empathy? I think that our media tends to dehumanize um, people in general. Uh, it started off with, um, you know, Hollywood dehumanizing people of color and women um, or anyone deemed uh, outside the mainstream. And so it's very easy to do that. And especially during wartime, um, like during the war on terrorism, we saw the, a huge dehumanization um, propaganda against uh, Muslims and people in the Middle East because it's easier to wage war on those people, that demographic. And so when we are trained to do that in our heads, we tend to not see the humanity in others, and that can extend to other groups as well. Even with online dating like Tinder, um, hmm. everyone is commodified. So it's almost like you're scrolling through these people and it's like going on Amazon looking for a product. 
And that way we're not seeing these people as fully human. Mm -hmm. And so our whole culture, be it, um, I guess, anthropology, but also capitalism, how capitalism tends to dehumanize people and just look at everything as commodity-based. And so that leads to um, a large part of our culture just sort of being more narcissistic and less empathetic in ways because we're only thinking about ourselves and how we can get ahead. So how many of these people coming in to speak with you have social media addictions? I would say a lot, yeah. especially the younger clients. Yeah. And they somehow get wrapped up in promoting the brand and then that somehow triggers or, or breaks something in their brain? Um, I do think that with social media, our, it's very dopamine driven. So everything in our society is based on dopamine and how we can get more of it. And it's like an addiction. So every time you post something and you get likes, that's a big dopamine hit. And then your dopamine reserves um, decrease and you keep needing more and more and more of it. And so you kind of are in this mindset of, I need to keep getting all this validation externally from different people. And that's how you get your dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really don't do much on social media because it just kind of makes me feel weird. Um, but when I do see stuff or when I see stuff in um, you know news articles or whatever, I always wonder if the person posting the thing is really happy. Because a lot mm. of it is, it seems, like, it seems like you filter out the bad stuff and you just try to show the best thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. But usually, I mean, you can't be that happy all the time. Yeah. Life ebbs and flows. Absolutely. I mean, you were, were you on social media or do you have social media? Yeah, I mean, I have accounts and I post, you know, this stuff when, when I publish an episode, but... Um, the reason it it bugs me so much and the reason I never got into it, even like back in the day with MySpace and stuff, I don't like the feeling that you get, like feeling obligated to to like something, to, to give your approval or, or to say you're awesome. Like I don't like the back and forth that, that happens when – if you post something and you see, oh, uh, Susie likes it. Well, now you're like, oh, well, shit. When Susie posts something, I better tell her I like her thing so she knows that we're, you know what I mean? Mm. It just feels like there's so much underlying psychological, emotional stuff that's happening when you're doing all that. And honestly, too, I don't want to see some person I went to high school with that I don't talk to, I don't want to see their kid's first day of school. Like, I, <laughs> that, that sounds horrible. I, what I'm saying is I'd rather have a conversation with them and be like, hey, how's life going? Oh, your kid started school. That's awesome. I don't want to know everything about somebody's life without talking to them. That seems mm. weird to me. Yeah, it's that lack of uh, connection that direct connection. It seems like you really like being um, around people in the same space rather than away and just looking from afar. Um, I guess it is transactional, like you said. 
it's like you're obligated to like their post and um, they're obligated to keep posting and vice versa. Again, it's it's kind of uh, mimicking capitalism as a whole. And how how is it mimicking capitalism? Can you elaborate on that? It's it is transactional. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it has become a way of it's become a currency. Yeah, social currency. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I never viewed it that way, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's just this weird thing that we've all been thrust into in the last 15 years or so. And I don't think anyone really knows how to handle it. Hmm. And you, like you said, you get the dopamine rush from doing something or getting people to appreciate whatever it is you're doing. But then the downside is if you are excited about something and then you don't get the response you expect, then you feel shitty. Nobody Hmm. likes it. So It's so weird. And there's no... There, there's nothing to compare that to in the history of humans. Like you've never had a number. People like me 500 times. People like me 1,000 times. People like me 500,000 times. Like it's a weird way to feel good about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, you're so right about that. Um, do you know the author Johan Hari? <laughs> he wrote this amazing book called Lost Connections, and he talks about how Um, our mental health crisis, specifically anxiety and depression, is social rather than biological. And so he says that we as humans were programmed since caveman days to be in tribes. And that's what we're supposed to do is to be in small groups and connect with each other and uh, support each other. And so at the end of the day, all of us, you, me, your children, are just looking for connection and for validation and to be seen. And in some weird way, that's what social media does for us, but it's not how we're normally supposed to function. It's kind of like um, a monstrosity of what it should be. Mm -hmm. Well, you're also more likely to do and say things that you wouldn't do in person. Uh, I mean, specifically like starting a fight with someone, you would never do that in real life if you were face to face with them. But when you're hiding behind your phone or your computer screen or whatever, you have no issue just throwing stuff out at someone because you don't have to see their response. You don't have to feel uh, sympathy for them feeling bad. Like you're just like, fuck you. And you throw it at them. (laughs) And it's... Yeah, it's such a weird way to live. But there's like there's no going back on it now. Yeah, it is. It's a very weird way to live. Um, I guess people are, you know, they gain more confidence when you don't see them face to face. You're hiding behind a screen. So you just are allowed to be awful and, you know, just say these horrible things to people with no consequences. Yeah, the other thing that is weird and has been um, more normalized since COVID is just doing Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a positive technology for people who can't make it across the world or whatever. But like, this is a perfect example. A lot of times when I write people and ask them if they'll come with me, 
we'll get through the whole process and be like, okay, such and such, I'll see you at this place on this day. And they go, oh, it's in person? And I'm like, yeah, I want to see you. I want to interact with you. <laughs> and most people want to do it on Zoom. And that's not normal. You're staring at a screen with a little tiny version of someone. And if you are in, everybody who works for a company has done this. When you're in a meeting with 50 people and you're looking at everyone's face directly, mm -hmm. everybody's staring at everybody like this. Right. That's not normal either. And that's <laughs> going to have some sort of psychological effect on everyone. Mm -hmm. That's, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to condition us to do things a little bit differently, which could be good in the long run. I don't know. But I'm saying right now, that is not real life. And COVID messed up a ton of that stuff for everybody. Now, there are some people who won't leave their house. They're mm -hmm. like, I don't need to go see you. I can talk to you on the computer. And I mean, I'm sure that plays into everything you're doing where you have people come in and things are not quite right upstairs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, there's definitely a lack of social skills. And you said, you know, COVID exacerbated that. So people got used to not being in face-to-face -face with others. And isolation can be addicting too. Because we spent over two years at our homes and it becomes comfortable and that's what we're used to. And isolation is like any other drug. The more you do it, the more you want to do it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are maybe afraid to go out and socialize. Maybe they think that they've lost their social skills and especially children who grew up and going to school during COVID. Uh, there is a deficit in social skills with them compared to older generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even the much younger generation being born into a society where everyone's covering her off their face, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you probably don't work with kids that young. Do I you? don't know. You don't? Okay. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff that we don't even know about yet that's going to come out in the next oh, 20 absolutely. years. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so would you say that, I mean, what is what is the biggest factor in the people that you work with coming to you and having these social issues? It, you're, is it trauma-based from childhood? I mean, what what are some of these things that are, are uh, more prominent amongst all of them? I guess it it's always back to trauma. It's always back to their childhood. Um, and that can even trigger social anxiety and social isolation. Because if you at baseline, you started off with, um, you know, a traumatic past and you're still coping with that and then COVID hits and that just amplifies everything. So people who are already more at risk for being socially isolated, it just made it so much worse after and during COVID. Um, but then there's, you know, a few people who were not traumatized as much in their childhood and then uh, became more socially uh, inept during COVID too. I think it, it's a mix. Uh, usually most people I see have some kind of trauma. So it's either trauma or COVID or both. 
it's always a combination. It's never just an easy answer like, oh, this is the one thing that's causing it. It's yeah. always a combination of things. Hmm. And so you've been doing it for three years. So you you kind of don't know much about what it was like before COVID, right? No, I don't. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you interact with colleagues and they tell you things were different? That they weren't seeing as many cases and now there's this increase because of COVID? I mean, do you have anything to compare it to? The only thing my colleagues will say is that for younger kids, they there's a lot more autism people on the spectrum, like ADHD, um, and there's more defiant behavior, opposition, oppositional defiant disorder for children, um, and a lot more anxiety in general. Oppositional defiant. I've never heard that before. What does that mean? It's for children who are, I believe, under 12, but they are very oppositional. They uh, tend to have outbursts. They are rebellious. They won't do anything their teachers or parents will tell them. Those are the kids that are probably named Kyle, you know? <laughs> like they they just tend to be really um, hard or difficult to deal with. Okay. And so we're seeing more cases of that with younger kids. Huh. That just seems like the kid in school who wouldn't listen to anybody. I mean, yeah. that's typically like probably related to something at home, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems that the the underlying factor is typically that if you have a situation at home that's pretty solid and you have people you can rely on and who love and support you, you have a better chance of things working out right? Mm -hmm. It's when, when something happens, but most people have something at some point, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's been a new study out that says people who have been traumatized, it doesn't matter how severe the trauma is, as long as you were supported and validated by uh, your family or people around you, you will come out um, not as traumatized, so more resilient Versus people who were traumatized, maybe at the same level, but had no support network. That's what really creates the issues, is when you have uh, no one there to unconditionally love you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, well, I just wanted to hit a few more things that were in your bio, because your bio is really cool. So uh, explain to me, because it says in here some stuff about uh, climate, economical, political, societal. How, how is climate pay, playing into any of these issues that we're talking about? I would say largely climate. Like there's a huge um, segment of our society that is – very anxious about the climate crisis. And um, it's a term called eco-anxiety. So with climate change and even the war in Ukraine, everything that's going on, there's a collective trauma. The world has always had issues, though. Mm -hmm. That's not going to change. Right. I mean, you could go back to the 40s and say people had World War II 
uh, anxiety, right? I mean, there's always something. Absolutely. The difference is, I guess, there weren't as many mental health resources back then. People weren't seeing as much therapists, so there's nothing to really gauge that against. Um, What we're seeing is so many events just one by one in a very short span of time. So like the Spanish flu and World War II and World War I, like those all happened, but they were spaced out a little bit more. Well, I think one of the biggest factors in that being different is that information wasn't as widespread. Mm-hmm. Now, I think people could potentially put too much anxiety on themselves just by being on the internet all the time. Mm-hmm. You can read about anything you want to. That there's there's hundreds of wars happening right now, and they're all terrible, I'm sure, for a number of reasons. But if you don't read about them constantly, then you're not going to be anxious about them. Yeah. So, I mean, that is prob- probably part of the problem too, right? People just trying to learn too much? Yeah. I mean, doom scrolling is a huge issue. And um, all this information that's bombarding us can create anxiety. It can create chaos in our mind. So for the people that come in and speak to you about this, can't you just say chill on your phone for a while? That seems like one of the biggest problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I can tell them to stop using their phone all I want, but it doesn't mean that they're going to follow through on that. It's very addicting. Like we use our phones for everything to call our mom, to get emails from our work. So it's hard to put it down when our um, livelihood depends on our phones. Uh, I found that there are certain measures. You can put a timer on your phone. If you're using it too much, you can delete the apps there's different ways to reduce your screen time, but it it's just dependent on how motivated you are to actually stop. So with the people you work with, how often is that a concern where you're like, you need to do something about your phone time, your, your screen time? That's a bigger issue among younger clients. So um, my clients who are about 25 and under, they can't stop going on Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok and like all these other apps. Uh, so that's more of an issue for them because they've been socialized to find connection through um, social media. Whereas I guess older people, um, older millennials and older, they aren't as socialized to do that. They weren't born in a period where they always knew the internet. So how many disorders do you think are going to be related to cell phones and the internet? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think a lot. I mean, I the DSM is going to put internet addiction, I think, in their new version. What is DSM? That's the Diagnostic Statistics, Statistics Manual for um, Diagnosis. So anytime you diagnose someone, you use that. And that's like our Bible as therapists. Um, there's different codes for different disorders. And so each, every few years or so, they put out a new one. And I think the new one is supposed to have internet addiction. Yeah. It's got to be responsible for so much stuff. It's crazy how we could come up with this thing that unites everyone and allows the the, the widespread uh, 
the freedom of widespread information, but then could also be so negative mm-hmm. and cause so many problems. And it it's only gonna it's only gonna amplify. It's only I mean, as the internet becomes I mean, as it transitions into VR and we begin living in the metaverse, I mean, then it's going to just get even weirder. People will not see each other face to face at some point. You will have no reason to go anywhere. You will get everything that you think you need digitally, which is so weird. But I think it's unavoidable. I think it it can be avoidable. Um, there might be two factions, one that embraces technology and goes into the metaverse, and then another that just goes off into the woods and decides we don't need technology, (laughs) we're going to go make fires and hunt for food. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That'll be a much smaller percentage of the population. Uh, So the majority of your younger clients, they... Do you do you speak with them and hear that they are having less face-to-face interaction with people? They're more content with communicating digitally? I think there's always going to be face-to-face interaction. And they, they want it. Even the most anxious and um, introverted patients still want face-to-face connection. Um, it just is determined on their situations. Some of them don't have jobs. A lot of them don't have jobs, actually. That's a huge issue that I'm dealing with, Hmm. is uh, clients who are unemployed. Which makes them weird, and then they get weirder, and then it's even harder to get a job, right? That's kind of like a catch-22 or like a a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Um, I wouldn't say they're weird. I Well, uh, not not to say anything negative about any of them. I'm just saying, like... If part of your problem is you don't have a job and it creates mental issues for you, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be even harder to get a job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, there's self-esteem at play. They have very low um, self-esteem, kind of going through an existential crisis where it's like, what's my purpose in life? You know, I don't have anything to do. I don't have anywhere to go. And then there's the social factor where it's like, oh, well, I got my socialization at my job where I would talk to my coworkers and all that stuff, and that's gone. So there's, it just kind of accumulates and um, it blows up into this, you know, a lot of mental health issues. And so primarily dealing with borderline and narcissistic, uh, are there other other realms that you are getting into as well? Or are those kind of like the, the main two? I would say mostly borderline at this point. Um, there's elements of narcissism within borderline. and Well, the, his, histrionic as well, right? Because histrionic is basically like you thrive on drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Histrionic, you could even use Amber Heard as a good case for that. Um, someone who needs to be the center of attention all the time and will go through any length to get it. Um, yeah. Very dramatic. Yeah, that was a pretty wild case. That was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he was 
guilty of doing some some pretty bad stuff as well, but uh, the lengths that she went to try to destroy him and then got caught doing it, it's that that to me is like a, a true case of mental illness. Like there's something really wrong with her. And that's probably exacerbated by fame. Can you imagine being famous like that and just having people working for you? You get whatever drug you want. You get private jets. Yeah. You're, you're hanging out with Johnny Depp. Like you're not a regular person anymore. You can't exist in society and that's got to mess you up so bad. Yeah. I That's definitely the case in, in some people. But I do think with Amber Heard, she was like that as a child. Like she – sought out that attention. She knew she was going to be famous at some point. Hmm. So it was more like her fulfilling her own prophecy in her head hmm. based on what I've heard about her childhood um, and trying to move to LA when she was really young. Some people just see themselves having that lifestyle. And I think with histrionic people, the fame doesn't really change them that much. That's just who they were to begin with. Hmm. But the weird thing is there is an unmeasurable amount of ambition in a person like that to have that drive and that desire and then to make it happen. Mm -hmm. It's weird because you have to appreciate it on some level because some people have no ambition. And I don't know what the right balance is, but I don't know. That's what life is, right? You're just trying to you're trying to be happy. You're trying to do things that make you happy. You're trying to find some level of, of success so you can be proud of yourself. But yeah, what's what's the balance between, uh, I guess, you just can't be, can't be rude to people and, and destroy people in your path. You know, that's, that's kind of <laughs> excessive. Yeah. <laughs> I think the difference is your motivation. If you're motivated uh, to be, be in Hollywood or be an actor, um, be seen? Is it to create art, to release your creativity, or is it for external validation? It's really about the motive behind these choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what about what, what other elements are you experiencing with, with all the people that you're, you're working with as you, as you, someone comes in and, and you're hanging out and you're talking with them. I am, I imagine it's different with every person, but the process that you go through things, do you have a certain process or does it change with every single person? What do you mean by process? I mean, how, you, what, what do you do? You just have to learn about each specific person and try to figure out that core thing to work on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say that's pretty accurate. Um, of course, there's an initial intake, but and then there's a treatment plan. But it's really about tailoring their treatment to who they are and their personality, for example, some clients, they really thrive with deep breathing and meditation, and other clients hate that. They need something else. I have one client who um, has OCD and ex is extremely anxious, and nothing seems to calm them except for laughing. Hmm. So their coping mechanism is laughter, 
And it's not a one size fits all. I think that's um, kind of a misnomer. A lot of people think, oh, just do CBT or just do DBT or this or that. But really, it's different for each person. So like if I were to give you an assessment, I would tailor your treatment plan based on what I think would suit you best and your personality and your internal motivation. Do you ever put anybody in a float tank? (laughs) What do you mean by that? Have you never seen float tanks before? You mean like a sensory deprivation tank? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just no. No. I hear good things. I have a guy scheduled for next month to come talk to me and he gave me a free float oh, wow. and I've never done it before. So I'm going to go check it out and see how oh that goes. I, I've heard from things I've read and listened to that it can be very similar to a psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're alone with your mind in darkness floating and you're kind of responsible for whatever happens. Like when you have nothing, yeah. nothing to focus on, and your mind can just wander, mm-hmm. that's to some people a, a safe place and to other people a scary place, I guess. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, it should be cool. I, I've heard good things about it. I'm going to go check it out before he comes down here. Uh, but then, so that gets us into, you uh, said that you, uh, your thesis project is about ecotherapy in conjunction with psilocybin. So what, have you ever done mushrooms? Do you not want to say? You don't have to say if you don't want to. (laughs) Um, You don't have to. Well, they're legal now, so yes. Okay. So that experience, is that what led you to believe that that could help people with mental issues, depression issues? Um, I've had a few experiences with psychedelics And uh, the reason why I'm a therapist and I guess talking to you right now is I had a really bad acid trip one time and that changed my personality forever. And it made me realize that, you know, I need to find some purpose and I found it during my trip. So I was working all these different jobs and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And that helped me for sure. What happened in your trip? Um, I was going through a really bad breakup and, uh, I decided to take it to clear my mind because I, I think taking it once a year for me really helps to kind of, um, clean the slate of my brain, you could say. Um, so I took it at my house and spent a whole day just on that trip. I walked around and I, um, I definitely saw different things. And then I had a really bad breakdown during the trip. I remember I was crying in the corner of my bedroom and the shades were down and I just couldn't get out of it. I, it felt so bad, like one of the worst experiences I've ever had. But when I was out of it, I realized what I needed to do with my life. Hmm. So it was a negative experience, but it helped you turn it around into a positive experience. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You were there by yourself? My roommate was there part of the time, but she was so freaked out that she had to leave. Oh, God. So I was there by myself for half the time. Yeah. Yeah, you don't really want to be alone. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, the, I mean, 
I've done lots of uh, psychedelics and the, the thing about them is you can't come out when you're in it. You just got to wait. And that's what I think scares most people is the thought that they'll have a bad trip and then they can't get out of it. Mm Because it's not like, uh, what do they give to, I think they give Narcan to people who overdose on heroin. Mm -hmm. Like you overdose on heroin, boom, Narcan, you're done. You can't come out of acid. You can't come out of mushrooms. You just got to wait. And that is a scary concept that you could be tripping in some other dimension and not have the ability to leave it. But you're saying you did it a number of times, and then that one time it had a profound effect on you, and you decided at that moment that you wanted to pursue using it as therapy. Yeah, I I wanted to pursue becoming a counselor. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it is scary to be in it, especially when it's a bad trip. But I, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad trip. And people always want to have, you know, joyful, happy experiences, but you also need to experience the pain and the suffering because that's what really pulls you out. That's what really makes you change the course of your life. And so with every bad experience is a learning experience. It shows your dark side, what you need to work on. I agree with that statement. I think people bury stuff inside them and Either they think they can't work through it or they're scared to work through it. And yeah, sometimes those elements can bring that stuff out. But there's substantial evidence these days that uh, psilocybin and other elements are becoming like respected uh, depression therapies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's legal in Oregon. Do you know what the legality of it is? Um. My boss said that they're going to start actually using it clinically in 2023. So our clinic is going to start implementing it, and he's um, getting certified. But it's like a $16,000 course. So um, it, it will be available next year, hopefully. You're saying you have to pay the state $16,000 to become a representative that they deem uh, okay? Um, no, it's uh, to get certified. So the course itself is $16,000 and that's the only one that's been approved by the state that he could find, hmm. but it's uh, separate from the government. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. But it's still legal. The certification is, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because isn't, isn't medicinal use of prescribed by a doctor uh, in Oregon of psilocybin legal right now? Or you're saying not till 2023? I believe it's not until 2023. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious how they quantify that because every time I've eaten mushrooms, you just ate a mushroom. You didn't know. It's not like there's five milligrams of space juice inside it. You know, you have no idea what's going to happen. And it, it it's different based on size, stem. Like, how are they going to quantify that? Um, they use liquid uh, psilocybin, so you can extract it and get um, an actual dosage. Okay. So there's pills rather than just taking the caps. Okay. Huh. That's pretty cool. Then you don't have to deal with the, the crappy taste of the mushrooms. Yeah, I know. They taste so bad. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's really exciting. I think that's a good thing that Oregon's doing. I think they're the only state that has gone that far. I want to say we are the pioneers of yeah. this. I think Washington, maybe Colorado is doing something similar. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Yeah, it's going to be huge if they can if they can do some some serious research on that and make progress, then it could become a, a nationwide and a worldwide thing. It's just I think there's pushback from the pharmaceutical companies because they can make so much money prescribing other drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning there's a huge pushback with the pharma companies, but now they're getting in on it. And that's a little scary. Um, we have people patenting different types of psilocybin and then trying to sell them as pharmaceuticals. So that'll be in the future. You'll see like Pfizer and J&J and all these different chemical companies. They're going to be selling them as pharmaceuticals. It's going to be synthetic? Mm-hmm. I guess it's just a it's a certain compound. It's a number of elements mixed together, right? So mm-hmm. they can just they can just cook it up in the kitchen. Absolutely, yeah. And why I'm not a fan of the pharmaceutical companies, but why is that a bad thing? I think that um, you know we have a problem with big pharma and um, psychopharmacological drugs like. SSRIs and benzos and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. It'll be the same thing now only with um, psychedelic drugs. They're going to profit off of it and mark up the prices so that it'll be really expensive now um, for people who do need the help and also not paying respect to um, indigenous practices that used it to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you'll still be able to just grow mushrooms or or get it your own way or if they'll somehow make it so you have to get it through them it seems like that would be the thing they would do probably yeah um yeah i mean i'm not a fan of that but if this can truly help people and you know make a dent in mental illness i think we need whatever we can get mm-hmm. it's it's a significant issue because you can't have a happy, healthy society when you have people with mental illness. You can't, I mean, that's that's a huge part of the homeless problem. You can't help a lot of those people because their minds are so far gone. You, you have to fix their mind before they can get a job. You know, everybody's like, ah, oh, tell them to get a job. They can't get a job if they're crazy. Like <laughs> they need help. And that is, I mean, that's that's the biggest problem we have right now is is helping people work through their trauma and figure out how to contribute to society. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. I, I mean, there's plenty of people with mental health issues that have jobs for sure. Okay. Um, just because you are unemployed doesn't mean you are more mentally ill than someone with a job. I think our values need to be reexamined where um, having a career isn't the, you know, most important thing to be happy. What do we need to do differently? What, where does the balance need to lie? 
I think, so do you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I have heard of it. I couldn't tell you what it is. It's, um, so there's like a triangle and you have your basic needs like shelter, water, food. Um, and then you have uh, belonging. So being part of a group and feeling loved. You have um, purpose and you have self-actualization and uh, mental health falls in the higher category. So do you, do you need a roof over your head? Do you need a job? Do you need all these things before you can treat your mental health or vice versa? That's kind of like a chicken or egg situation. And we kind of need to figure that out. I think that people need their basic needs met. Uh, it, things need to be less expensive. Um, there needs to be more social services for people who need it. Um, and then they can focus on their mental health without worrying about um, where their next meal is coming from, you know, because that creates mental health issues in itself. Sure. If you don't have enough money to get food, you can't really focus on other parts of your life. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Well, I mean, that also goes into the, the issues we have with diet in this country and the world, too. Um, you can't be healthy if you're eating terrible food and not exercising, right? Mm -hmm. how, how much of an issue is that with people you work with where they have diet uh, trouble or, or issues getting good food and or they don't exercise? Yeah, that's a huge issue. I think half my clients are um, physically unhealthy and the other half are really healthy. Um, but the path that aren't, they eat fast food, they don't exercise, they um, are abusing substances. So, yeah, they really need to get their physical health in check, too, because our mind and our body is connected and our body can affect our mental state and vice versa. So eating healthy and um, getting sunlight exercise is really important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we have evolved over time, mostly getting nourishment from the sun, being in the sunlight, and you lock yourself in a room and spend all your time on the internet, and then you get DoorDash food sent to you, and mm -hmm. it's not the way that we developed. And it, I could see how, I mean, all those things are interrelated. If you are, are trying to, to make healthy food and you're exercising, you are naturally going to be more mentally healthy uh, without having to deal with anything else. Um, so yeah, they all kind of work together. Um, but with your, your work on psilocybin, what is the goal for you in 2023? I think, like you said, I totally agree. It will help a lot of people and we need it. We need to break free from um, taking these SSRIs and benzos and different drugs. Um, and there, you know, there's been many studies saying psilocybin is really effective, especially for MDD, major depressive disorder. And they've shown that uh, one or two sessions of psilocybin is equivalent to daily use of SSRIs for the same amount of time. So for a month, if you're taking like um, Prozac, let's say, and you take it every single day, 
it's equivalent to just one psilocybin trip. Hmm. So imagine taking one pill of psilocybin a month versus one Prozac every day. Well, in this dose that you're talking about, do people even trip or are you talking about microdosing? I'm talking about a full-on dose. A full-on dose, okay. Yeah, microdosing is effective too, I think. Yeah, I just wonder how many people are going to be brave enough to do a full-on dose. I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> There's so many people who want to try it, old and young, from all walks of life. Yeah, I have a friend who is going to um, go through the legality of trying to become um, a guide. Mm -hmm. And I know some other guides too. And that is a cool career path. It's just dancing on the the lines of being legal, which mm. is which is weird when, I mean, you have shamans in the jungle that you can go uh, do ayahuasca with. Mm -hmm. It just depends on which country you're in. And it's all stuff that grows naturally in the ground that many cultures and civilizations have been using for hundreds or thousands of years. And for whatever reason, we decided it, it is illegal and we can't let people have it. And I don't know, I, th I hope it's gonna change. Yeah, I think that happened because of the war on drugs um, because psilocybin and acid and even ketamine and MDMA, um, they were used in like the 50s and 60s into the 70s. And then um, with the hippie movement and Timothy Leary and all those people, uh, they gave a lot of young people these psychedelic drugs. And so they ended up withdrawing from society, uh, protesting against the war. They weren't going into normal nine to five jobs. They were abandoning um, social norms in America. And so they decided to stop that. And that's why they banned uh, psychedelic drugs and any research related to that. But acid was very effective for alcoholics. It was the most effective treatment. And the um, creator of AA actually used acid to stop being an alcoholic. <laughs> and that worked for him really well. <laughs> yeah, do you know much about Ibogaine? No? Mm -mm. Yeah, Ibogaine uh, is is similar. It's a, a super powerful psychedelic that is very effective for drug abusers and alcoholics. And there are many stories where people just take it once and they never oh, wow. go back ever again. It's just a very powerful psychedelic. Mm. Yeah, the the brain is wired a certain way. And throughout your life, certain things influence you and cause you to do whatever you do. And people get stuck in ruts and they're afraid of trying other things. And the way I've always explained it is that it's like if you had the same route that you drove from your house to work every day. You always drive on I-84 and you go this way, you go that way. You take that same path every day. That's life. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody past 25 is doing, you know? You get up, you make your coffee, kids to school, you drive to work, you sit at your desk, you come back home, eat dinner, you go to bed. Mm -hmm. That's your life. That's what you do. Taking psilocybin or uh, eating mushrooms or doing acid or whatever, 
that's like going down some weird path and going in a back alley. Like mm-hmm. you're still going to work. You're still it's still the same world. You're just experiencing it a slightly different way. And that's what these drugs are to me. It just allows you to think about things that you normally don't think about. Mm. And it's very powerful. And to some people that is terrifying. But I think for this situation, it gives people the possibility of getting past that trauma Mm. or at least dealing with it. Was that your experience on psychedelics? Every time I've done them, the main thing that I've come up with is I just, I don't need to be worried about all the stuff that I'm worried about Mm. because you spend so much time being anxious and upset about stuff. You don't need to waste time on that. We're not here that long. Mm. All you really got to do is love people and accept them and understand I try to tell my kids this all the time. Like if you if you're at work with somebody or say you go to get a coffee from Starbucks or whatever and somebody freaks out on you, they're not really mad at you. They're dealing with something in their life. Maybe their wife is about to leave them or their kid doesn't like them or they their car broke down or something. Mm. Everybody has something that they're dealing with and if they treat you a certain way, 99% of the time it's not you. So you just got to be more accepting of people mm-hmm. and try to be like, hey, you know what? I know exactly what it's like to be that person and be having a shitty day. And so if people just loved each other a little bit more and were more accepting, it, it would be so much better. And I think that's what psychedelics do for you. Yeah. They allow you to view people as um, – I mean, going back to like what you said with Tinder, just like you don't even realize that it's a person. Mm -hmm. It's just a picture. It could be a made up. It could be anything. Like you don't put any value on that person as a person. And that's what you are capable of doing every day of your life when you're just going through the motions. You forget that the guy at at Safeway who's uh, checking out your groceries, you forget that's a person. Mm -hmm. You're just transacting with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what psychedelics do. They allow you to recognize you're dealing with people. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And it sounds like you had a beautiful trip. Um, What it sounds like is empathy opening up. That's what it does to you. It makes you feel more empathetic towards others, but also the world at large, nature, um, plants, animals, everything. Uh, it opens up your childlike sense of wonder. You look at the world as a five-year-old versus a 25-year-old or whatever, you know, and it also creates neuroplasticity. So if you had rigid thinking, um, if you had cognitive distortions, black and white thinking, it opens that up so that it's not so strong anymore, that you can think outside of yourself and outside of your thought patterns and the way you viewed and constructed the world. So if everybody just eats some mushrooms and stops looking at their phone, we're going to be fine. (laughs) Yeah. If everyone can just like go on drugs and (laughs) go wander around for a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. I think that's a good spot. Uh, I appreciate you talking with me and I'll be excited to see what happens next year and where this can go. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. It's been a great conversation. Awesome.